There are two kinds of extremes when it comes to parenting styles. On the one side, you have, these are extremes, mind you. No one really truly fits on either extreme, but some related version of this. But on one side, you have parents who treat their children like free-range animals. They don't do anything to restrict them, don't do anything to restrain them. They don't want to discipline their children. When they do wrong, it's ignored or even celebrated as self-expression. Their, their children are perfect little angels who can do no wrong. You just have to set them free. On the other extreme, you have parents who treat their children like they're prisoners in a POW camp. They eat when you tell them to. They sleep when you tell them to. Yes, they even use the bathroom when you tell them to. They're overly restrained, overly restricted. They're disciplined strongly, sometimes harshly. They're perfect little devils who always do wrong. You have to force them into your mold. Well, no one is on either extreme. People, based upon your personal personality, when you have children, you're probably going to lean one way or the other, given a host of reasons, your experiences. Maybe you had an overly strict childhood, you're going to swing the other way in the pendulum, right? You're going to let your children roam free. But if you lean too hard uh, on the first side, the freedom side, the free-range side, you're probably, possibly, going to have children who are aimless, very selfish, because your parents, you, doted on them too much. If you lean too hard on the restriction side, the POW side, you may end up with children lacking in confidence, no ability to make decisions of their own, or they just go wild because they first taste freedom, usually in college, and just throw off all the shackles. Parenting requires some navigation of wisdom between two extremes, neither extreme being all the time, and kind of navigating what it means to have both grace and discipline. You need both. And you need wisdom to know how to rightly apply grace and discipline depending on the person that you're dealing with. Every child is different. It's interesting. We, we recognize very obviously now when we're relating to Malia, my older child, or Selah, my younger child, that they're very different and they require different approaches. One time in the midst of a, a challenging moment with our younger one, uh, I remember her saying, I think Jeanette related to me, or maybe I heard it, that she said to, uh, Selah was speaking to us and she said, and in the midst of us trying to discipline her, that she's, she was crying and she says, I'm allowed to cry. I'm a little kid. Maybe revealing to us we're too harsh in that moment. We need grace and discipline. And that kind of wisdom is necessary, not just in parenting. It's in all areas of life. Definitely disciple making, the business of the church. Paul approaches individuals, churches differently. He, he navigates the wisdom between grace and discipline rightly. You kind of see him doing this as he's writing to different individuals and churches, depending on the circumstance. We see Paul wisely approach both of these, wisdom and dis in discipline and in grace in this passage. And I think if we want to grow more like Jesus, if we want to make much of Jesus, if we want him to be the center of our lives, we need to, for ourselves and for those that we're caring for and those we're relating to in our church community, whether on, you know, in small groups or in our church setting, in, in children's ministries or in youth ministries, we, we need to understand the wisdom of navigating both discipline and grace. Let's look at both of these one at, one at a time and then kind of see them relate together. Let's look at discipline first. Jump with me to verse 6 again. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So in some ways, the discipline is implied here. Uh, last week, I mentioned how in between 1st and 2nd Corinthians, 
Paul wrote another letter. We consider this kind of a lost letter. Remember, he was supposed to visit them one long winter, but then things went bad. So he kind of made an emergency visit. And on that visit, he said, oh, I'm going to visit you twice. And then that first visit was so bad that he, instead of visiting them again, caused more pain for everyone. He wrote them a severe letter. So this is kind of referring to the letter. And in that letter, he asked them to discipline an individual who was out of step with the gospel in their midst. And so he asked them to do this. He said, reveals this in verse 9. For this is why I wrote that I might test and know whether you are obedient in everything. So he asked them to deal with this because part of your faith in Christ is your willingness to be obedient to the things that Christ calls us to. If they're really in Christ, he wanted to see if they would correct the sin in their midst. Would they care about the purity of their fellowship? Would they care about the honor of Christ, even if Paul's not there? That's a good parenting lesson, isn't it, sometimes? Sometimes we want to step in all the time, but often what helps children the most, what helps disciples the most is to see what they do when no one's looking because that's what their character is. So Paul wrote them this letter, asked them to deal with the sin in their midst, and he wanted to see if they actually had genuine faith to deal with it. And they did, as we see here. Now, we don't know exactly what happened with this individual. Um, some think that this individual that's being called out is the same person in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, who was in a grievous sexual sin uh, and then was eventually put out of the church for discipline. Uh, but that's very less likely because this has to do with Paul personally, probably undermining his authority. So I don't, I don't really think it's the same person as older scholars used to kind of guess. We don't know exactly. Uh, it doesn't seem to be a sexual issue or even a doctrinal issue. It, it seems like a personal attack on the authority of of Paul's apostleship that threatens the gospel, threatens their community. And Paul wanted the church to address this, not, not because he was personally just offended, someone was calling him names or something, but because if they undermine him, and they undermine the gospel message he's giving to them. And then they're going to be led astray to the super apostles in their misleading people to a false truth. Now, he wants the church to respond in faith to discipline this person. Now, that, that seems strange to us, I, especially, I think, in modern American times. I read estimates. I don't know really how scholars get these estimates, but maybe it's close to accurate in our experiences or my conversations with other churches and leaders. The, these estimates are only 10% of evangelical Protestant churches actually practice any form of discipline any kind. Uh, this idea of discipline here isn't an ego trip. It's not because the, the leaders cannot be questioned. It's not because they're perfect and everyone else just has to fall in line. No, it's because the church represents Jesus and his character. And when there's something that directly is an affront to his character, they can't just say, well, this is no big deal. You have to actually respond to it carefully and actually care for the offender as well. This kind of discipline isn't micromanaging people's lives. It's not like, well, you missed the prayer meeting. You, you didn't read scripture today. And now we're going to call your name out in the middle of church. This isn't even people who are wrestling with everyday sins. We, we all are in this journey of confessing, repenting, being tripped up and pursuing Christ. And everyone takes a lot of steps forward. A lot of people step back. That, that's not what this is talking about. The discipline here, the, this calling out, of this individual is because he's in continual, defiant, unrepentant sin. They're defiant about it. They're in the midst of sin and they don't, they're defensive about it and they don't want to hear anyone else say otherwise. 
And this can't be ignored for the sake of Christ's honor. It also cannot be ignored for the love of this person who's continuing on in sin. It's for the honor of Christ. If, if the church is the embassy of Jesus, empowered by the Holy Spirit to reflect him, we reflect his whole character, his holiness, his goodness, also his mercy, his forgiveness. We reflect his, his excellence. We reflect the fact that he's above reproach. If we ignore things that directly contradict that in our midst, that's known, we actually tear down the honor of Christ. I would say if you continually ignore those things, you eventually cease to be a church if you ignore things that are directly an affront to Jesus in our midst. Think about it in earthly terms for a moment. West Point. It's a premier university for military students in our country. Part of their motto is duty, honor, and country. That, that's what it says if you join West Point. You, you get this drilled into you, duty, honor, and country. Let's say a student uh, has a regular expectation for them to have PT, physical training. It begins at 0500 every single day. But they decide it's not for them. It's just too early. The sun's not up. It's too cold. And they just scoff at this expectation that 0500 is when they're supposed to be ready for PT. And other students continue to uphold this expectation and duty. Now, if they, the leaders of this particular unit, this particular class, ignore the student who is scoffing at the expectations, they would be dishonoring their university. And actually, they would be dishonoring all the other students who are doing their part. To ignore this particular person brings down their reputation. It dishonors the university. It dishonors that group of students. It actually does harm to the student as well, who's no longer leading in terms of their duty and responsibility. Discipline in the church. It is about upholding the honor and character of God. If we ignore blatant, obvious, unrepentant sin in our midst, we dishonor Jesus. The witness of the church becomes compromised. It's also for the benefit of the person. And it may feel harsh in our society, especially given that we're overly individualistic now, but if you ignore someone who's deep, who says they're a professing follower of Jesus, they're a son or daughter, and they're deep in unrepentant sin. Is it loving to them to just say, oh, whatever, they can do whatever they want? Would you be a loving parent if you allowed your children to just roam free and, you know, they just love to have fun and so they get in the bathtub, the little kids, they love bath time and they want to play with toasters plugged in in the bathtub. Yeah! Loving, just let you do what you want. We, by nature, understand to love your child who wants to play with a plugged-in toaster in the bathtub is not loving. To restrain them from that is love. But out of wisdom and discipline, we, we, we do that with our children. If my kid wants to run around in the streets playing with a staple gun, I'm not, am I to say to that request, ah, I'm not one for judgment. That's not loving. If you have family members or a friend who's battling severe addiction, ignoring it, pretending like it doesn't exist, does that love them? Does that do any good for anyone? The church and Christians, when we talk about discipline, and again, I'm only doing a really surface on this. We're going to do a series later in the year on marks of the church, biblical church, and we'll get to this again, but just hear me at least at a surface level here because we need to think about this for our own purity, our own excellence in Christ. 
the church and Christians, we, we understand when it comes to discipline, we're not the final judge. Christ is the final judge. But we do have a responsibility to one another in the church. Paul wanted to see, as he wrote this severe letter to them, if they would actually follow through in holding this person accountable. If they lacked courage or lacked willingness to hold this person accountable, the assumption is that, that they lacked faith. And this is important. I think we need to understand this because we kind of think about faith as only a set of things that we assent to. It, is, it does include content. It include, includes right doctrine. But the real test of faith, we see this throughout James. It's what you do. Faith isn't just saying what you believe. It is living in light of what you believe. He wanted them to actually follow through. Will you hold this person accountable for blatant sin? But most of us, we struggle. We're probably like the church in Corinth. That's why Paul had to write a severe letter. They probably were like, they felt like us. They're like, well, should we get involved? This is going to cause more, like, more painful conversations in our midst. They just want to put their heads in the sand. We, we, our tendency is not to avoid messiness. We don't want other people to dislike us. We don't want to shake things up. But if discipline is to honor Christ in the love of the person, we need to learn how to step carefully, wisely into this. This is partly, in our church, I would say, this is something we deeply struggle with. It, it, it's easy to hold people accountable when it's obvious blatant sin. If we had a leader in our church, this is we had a small group leader who is continually, unrepentantly in an adulterous relationship, that would be clear to us that we should hold this person accountable. I think we could, I think, in grace, we could handle that. But what if someone's unrepentantly harsh in their small group for years? They're belittling people. They're attacking people. Their attitude is just unreflective of Jesus. And they continue in this really terrible attitude. Will we be able to actually have the tough conversation with this person and say, no, this is not helping people in your group grow. You are not growing. You're, you're leaning so hard on, on holding these things that you're now pushing people away from Jesus, would we be able to do that? I think it's harder on some of those things. We need to learn how to wisely, carefully approach these matters. This is also why I, I, I struggle with this too. And we're learning this in eldership. I'm being very kind of vulnerable for, with you for a second. I, 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 I'm learning at, even at the elder level. Um, one of the things that I think is really good for our church in having these structural conversations is it, it involves us having very clear conversations of what the elders are supposed to do. When the elders were attached to the board, the board defined what the elders are supposed to do. And that kind of, I don't think is always very helpful. Now that we've kind of clarified that there's a separation between these groups, now we get a chance to say, what does the elder actually do? And this is something we need to really kind of pray about. And as a leadership, we've been talking about this because there have been seasons where there have been elders on our team who are like my parents' age, which is also why it's hard, like which who don't show up to anything, who don't come anymore. But how do we hold them accountable? We don't have a system. And then how do you have a conversation with someone who holds a title in our church, but they're your parents' age and say, well, you're not no longer functioning. But it's also not loving for them. Also, I realize this is bad leadership on my part. It's not loving for the church. You allow elders then to not do anything in our church but hold titles. This has been hard. This has actually harmed our church for that purpose. And this is why I think it's good that we're having these tough conversations. It's allowing us to define clearly and hold each other to loving accountability. This is hard. This, this, is, this concept is super difficult for a Western 
culture because we, I, I really believe one of the, the, the biggest struggles of the modern American church is that we're overly individualistic. Our culture is very individualistic. That's why you hear phrases like, what's good for you is good for you. What's good for me is good for me. Some version of that in our culture. Because everyone is entitled to their own freedom to do whatever they want. But we as a church recognize while we do have personal responsibility and freedom, we are not, we're not independent. The, the church is an interdependent body. It, it is something we're attached together for cosmic purposes. But when we allow the culture individualism to define how we relate to one another, then this is why discipline doesn't work because, well, yeah, that's a sin, but am I my brother's keeper? We begin to say stuff like that. Is it really like we, we begin to just ignore things? See, this, this reflects, I think, in our church, our churches, not just Sunset Church. I think sometimes we function, we, we operate like the church is a club offering memberships where you get to participate as a disconnected individual. Uh, whenever you just come in whenever you want. You do whatever you want. Accountability in a club offering memberships doesn't make any sense, right? Imagine, it would be supremely strange if I went to Costco today and the guy stocking toilet paper was kind of observing my toilet paper purchasing for the last month and he said, you're being too wasteful. Stop using so much TP. That'd be a strange conversation to have with the stalker at Costco. I mean, who is he to say that I'm using way too much TP? in my life. But in a church, sometimes we function the same way, right? We, we have someone who's blatantly operating in a way that dishonors Jesus. But then we say, we, we don't know what, how we're supposed to do with this person. Or when we say to that person, this is something that's not helpful, that person may say, well, who are you to say that? Well, it's because yes, we have a love for one another. We, we want to actually everyone to honor and love Jesus here. We're a body interconnected. We're not a club offering individual memberships to come in as you please. This is a community with eternal value. Your lives are deeply connected together if we are a local church. And as the leaders stewarding this, Jesus holds the elders, the pastors, the staff of our church accountable. He'll say to us at the end, what did you do with my body? He will hold us accountable for where you guys went and how you loved him or didn't love him. This matters. Now, how do we do it? I really don't have time uh, to dig into this. Otherwise, it'll be a very long sermon. Uh, I think at least I want to say something. If this is something that's stirring you, maybe there's something in your community group. Maybe you're seeing something in our, in our church. I, I do want a biblical anchor. Go to Matthew 18. It's a good place to kind of begin to understand when Paul writes out to address this sin in their church, it, it, it's not because this is the first reaction. This is probably after, given that he's following scripture and Jesus' model here, they're, they're having conversations with this person saying, you know, this is actually harming our church. And the person's like, no. And they bring two other people, at least, based upon the two or three witnesses saying, you know, we see this impacting our church negatively. We, we need to talk about this. And the person just says, no, I'm just going to continue on this way. That's when you tell it to the church. So most things don't need to get, it'd be very rare for us to have, hopefully, me or the, one of the elders of our church calling out someone by name in our church community. Hopefully it happens at the level of our community where you're deeply committed to one another in your community group, your life group, and you say to each other, 
you know, I, I see this person walking out of step with the gospel. We love this person. Let's, let's prayerfully, gently come to this person. Let's have this conversation. And then it begins and it hopefully resolves because you see the love and care there. And that's usually where life happens like this. But Matthew 18, if you're wrestling with this question, I think that's a good place. I think the idea of coming to the person, you have to own it first. I, I often receive anonymous emails to my annoyance, actually. So if you're one of those people who write me an, uh, you know, anonymous emails, I, I've told our leadership, for the most part, we almost ignore them because there's no way for us to respond to them. In fact, when I say anonymous emails, people in our church have literally wrote, created fake emails to write us emails. So if you're that person, first of all, we want to talk to you. We've extended an invitation to talk to you, but we can't. In fact, I won't do it over email either. And I told our leadership, we don't respond to those. But if you want to actually deal with a concern, you have to take ownership to it. And that's part of love. You, ha you have to love this person enough, say, I want to have this conversation. I, I want to have this space. Because when you talk to someone, you're showing that your time, your energy, your care, your concern, your prayer, your body language, you're saying, I care about you enough that this is something that matters. I'll show up in your life. Because the rate of announced email, or if we do this in all kinds of ways that put us off, you're just saying, this is your responsibility alone. This is why I love Matthew 18. You go to the person. Because when you go to the person, you're saying, I'm in it too. I want to walk alongside you. I'm not just telling you what you're doing wrong. I'm here so when you repent, I'm here with you. I want to walk with you. That's enough about that. We need to get to forgiveness. Which is actually the bulk of this text. Not just discipline. This is, you need both. We struggle probably in our church more with discipline. We, maybe we struggle with both, actually. But I definitely realize we, we lack meaningful, godly, God-honoring discipline. But forgiveness may be also something we struggle with. They did, as a church in Corinth, carry out the punishment. They did. They held this person accountable. And now Paul wants them to forgive. Look at verses 6 to 8. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. This is also why it's important to go to the persons or person in person, because when they actually respond, you want to also extend open arms. Paul models this incredible gentleness of forgiveness. This is amazing. He doesn't mention this person by name. Part of it is because they all know who it is. I mean, if something's that public, everyone knows. But I think it's intentional that he doesn't name. Um, because he doesn't want to heap more kind of salt on the wound. Everyone already knows. He doesn't need to rehash problems because he's actually moved on from it. Paul's no longer dwelling on it. Look at verse 10. For anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ. He's already forgiven. And if anyone they forgive, he will also forgive because they're connected. This is amazing. This is the connectedness here because Paul, even though he's the one personally attacked in this, he's extending gracious forgiveness. Remarkable. He deals with this person with such grace and forgiveness. He says to the church, you've done your job of holding this person accountable. Now call off the dogs. You, you need to actually extend love. It's time for that. You, he doesn't want this person to experience excessive sorrow. I, I, I like what he says there. 
because I think it corrects us and it pulls some of us back. Some of us, which we would lean more towards the discipline side of things, some of us think when you're holding someone accountable, there's never enough sorrow. You kind of want them to pay, right? No, Paul doesn't say, he, he doesn't want us to be slower to forgive than God is. For those of us who lean more on the discipline side, maybe in our parenting, maybe in our church relationships, we shouldn't be slower to forgive than God. But sometimes I think we correct so much or so hard or so wrongly that we are kind of making this person pay for ourselves. Right? We shouldn't be slower to forgive than God. We don't want to heap more sorrow on someone who's genuinely repented. We don't want them to feel it longer. If someone says to us after you call them out on their sin, they say, you know, I'm, I, this is right. I need to turn away from this. Do you say to them, well, how sorry really are you? Maybe you need another six months. Come back to me later. No, Jesus says to these people who come, come to me. Come to me. There's a great depiction of this in a, in a very famous uh, musical, uh, Les Miserables. The French don't call it that. Les Miserables, right? Um, if you've seen that before, uh, Javert, who's played by, who's the officer, you know, tracking down Jean Valjean. If you see the more modern version, it's Russell Crowe always kind of annoys me in it because his singing isn't so great. Uh, it kind of distracts me the whole time. I was rewatching the section here and I was just like, ah, so distracting. But Russell Crowe, he, he, he's, he's got this confrontational moment with Jean Valjean. Jean Valjean is, you know, a, a person who's in sin and, and now he's kind of coming out and he's, he's changing. His heart's changing because of grace extended by the priest. And, and Javert, he's the person on the side of discipline, right? He, he's changing it. You see, remember the scene? Have you seen it, right? Men like you can never change, right? He sings that to him. I'm going to be a Broadway singer after I'm done being a pastor. You see, I haven't sung in a while, so it's back. It's back today. He sings that. That, that's, that, that phrase, men like you can never change. That's how some people think in the church. So we discipline and we, we just keep heaping more sorrow on this person. And we harm this. We have excessive sorrow on this person. You know, in the end of that story, I'm not ruining because it's been around for a long time, right? That lack of grace ruins him. You know, for, forgiveness, we need to see this. Forgiveness is a, is a matter of spiritual warfare. We, we tend to categorize spiritual warfare as like supernatural things that we, we can't describe. And there is a category for that. But you realize every single time you come to church, forgiveness and it is a matter of spiritual warfare. The spiritual war, every single time you get together with your small group, every single time you get together in your family, there's a spiritual war if there's a need for forgiveness. And often over time, if you're committed to a group of people long enough, you will need to forgive them because they're going to hurt you. Right? Look at verse 11 again so that we would not be outwitted by Satan. For we are not ignorant of his designs. He's talking about forgiveness. He wants them to forgive, turn in love, not to have excessive sorrow and push this person away because that is how Satan works. And listen, I read this quote this past week, super helpful from Calvin on this verse. He says, For it very frequently happens that under the color of zeal of for discipline, 
a pharisaical rigor creeps in, which hurries on the miserable offender to ruin, instead of curing him. It is rather, however, in my opinion, the second danger that he speaks. For if Paul did not, to some extent, favor the wishes of the Corinthians, Satan would have prevailed by kindling strife among them. You know, Satan wants to stop the work of reconciliation. You see how he works in the Gospels? Peter, he uses, he kind of comes in through Peter's zeal. And Peter, in his zeal to love and protect Jesus, he says, no, you're not going to die. And Jesus says, then get back from me, Satan. So that's Satan's work. Stopping him from going to his death, the, the Father's will. Then he goes to use Judas to make sure that Jesus is handed over to the enemy. Satan wants to use, and sometimes uses, you can see this in churches, you can see this in relationships, he uses the church's permissiveness, right? So we just ignore sin. That's how Satan sometimes works. We just ignore sin. We dishonor Jesus. We have no witness. But sometimes he can use the church rigidity, its legalism, to crush a church. You know, sometimes your, your efforts to remove evil and sin in our midst may actually be the work of evil. Because if there's no room for forgiveness, that's when Satan is outwitting us. Because you could say all you want, your church is a place for the good news and grace and forgiveness, but if we don't live it out, it doesn't work. If a spirit of unforgiveness is taking over a church, there's rigidity, there's legalism abounding, it poisons the witness. It poisons the soul of the Christian. It poisons everything to the point where we just can't do anything. Because how can you proclaim good news to someone who needs good news when you can't even extend it to your brother and sister in your church? You can't. Satan is outwitting our churches, both extremes, by ignoring the sin or overly, strongly, harshly condemning sin where there's no room for forgiveness. You know, if you stay in a church long enough, you're going to need to forgive. If you've never needed to forgive anyone in your church experience, and you are 50 years old. Let's just use that because that's relatively long enough to be somewhat committed to some place. If you've never needed to forgive anyone in your church experience and you're over 50 years old, you were never committed to anyone. You never got to know anyone. Because if you get to know, like you know this in, in friendships, you know this in marriage, you know this in family, you know someone long enough, they're going to hurt you because we're still messed up people. So if you're over 50 years old and you've never been hurt by someone, you never need to forgive anyone at a church, you were never committed. But if you stay long enough, you get to know someone long enough in the church, you will probably be hurt. You will eventually be hurt. Sometimes there's pettiness, sometimes there's pride. And I say that, that you'll need to forgive, eventually you'll be hurt. Not because I think you're all so bad, but just because we are that way. And so I would say this, as we're kind of in this midst of a new season, trying to figure out who we are as a church moving forward, I, I could say this, I think. Don't, don't commit to Sunset Church in this new season if you don't want to forgive. Because people will hurt you. You will need to forgive. If you say, I can't forgive, there's no forgiveness, just know you're doing the work of Satan. That's what it says in the Bible. He's using your lack of forgiveness to to break up the division, break up the church, divide the church. That's what Satan would have. I love what Paul says in Romans at the end. The God of peace will soon crush Satan. That's a weird sentence, isn't it? You don't think of peace as crushing. 
but it is. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. He says the God of peace will soon crush. You have to fight for peace. Peace is not a passive thing. God is actively crushing Satan to establish peace. We actively have to crush legalism and rigidity and a lack of forgiveness. What's, what's fundamental to the Lord's Prayer? Forgive us our sins. Forgive us our debts as we have forgiven those who sinned against us, who, who have debts against us. We, we, that is fundamental to us. We have to fight this desire for revenge, resist Satan's schemes to divide. You know, I, I see this happening. If you, if you get to know, and I've got to know a number of pastors over time, and I can see this. This is often how Satan works in our midst, in our country. And this is a spiritual warfare. I think Satan works by giving us exactly what we want sometimes. You know, in our, in our culture, we like big things. So we, he's a huge church. What Satan would love is a huge, massive church with massive influence, a lot of recognition around the country, and make that church either a church that ignores sin completely and they lack witness, or they're so harsh, there's no forgiveness because that will kill the witness of the church. That's what Satan's doing, right? He's given us huge churches with massive influence, massive understanding, pastors with huge like followings on Instagram and all these things. And what he'll do is just give them, give us exactly what we want at times and make it a church that ignores sin completely or makes a church that judges so harshly. It just do, it does the work of Satan. That's what he's doing. We need to resist that. We need to know, have a church that's led by the Spirit that understands there is a wisdom to both discipline and grace, and we need both. Let me say a few things about forgiveness here. I think it's important to think about this. Forgiveness, let me say a few things what it's not and then say what it is. Forgiveness is not the absence of consequence. You know, David, uh, he's forgiven for his sin with Bathsheba. But he lost his first child. If you look at his family afterwards, man, there's some messed up sons afterwards if you read the story. Deeply suffered. He, he definitely was forgiven with the Lord. He suffered significant consequences. The thief on the cross next to Jesus, he said to them, today you will be with me in paradise. What happened to him? He died. He still had to suffer the consequences. I think I'll say this now so that if sometime in the future this happens, that hopefully some of you will remember this and hold the leaders accountable. If the leaders are ever caught in sin, and leaders can be restored. They can. In terms of relationship with the Lord, they can be restored relationally with people in the church. If there's some significant sin from some of our leaders, which will probably, if we keep going on long enough, sometime it will happen. But doesn't mean, it does not mean that they will automatically be leaders still. It cannot. Because they've already broken that trust. They've broken that, that, that responsibility to be above reproach. Yes, there can be forgiveness. It does not mean there's no consequence. We love that person. We open arms to the leader who's committed sin. But it does not mean we put them back in their position of leadership. There's consequences. Still, even as we forgive, those things both go hand in hand. Sometimes you might have to go to see someone who's deeply hurt you. There's, there's consequences even relationally, right? I, I think this is the nuance. You can forgive someone and still not trust them. Someone, in, let's just say some leader in our church embezzles money. 
We deal with it. We deal with the legal side of it. We deal with the relational. We deal with the spiritual side. The person repents. We put them back in the church. They're restored to good relationship. We love them. We care for them. We're not making them unduly harsh and sorrow. I'm not going to put them in the accounting. Right? That, that works. You can do that. There's consequences there. Even though we love this person. Forgiveness also doesn't mean the absence of pain. I think we, I, it seems obvious, but I think it's worth saying. Sometimes you will have to give, forgive something, forgive someone, where you won't ever, maybe for a long time or maybe never, feel great about it. And that's okay. And it may take a long time, but you forgiving someone doesn't mean that the pain is going to be gone. And that usually varies depending on how severe the, the sin was in your life. It doesn't mean there's going to be an absence of pain. It's not going to automatically go away. Forgiveness doesn't always mean a full restoration of relationship, which I've kind of already alluded to, but I, I think this is important. Um, individually, I think corporately, when people, sometimes when you pursue forgiveness, that person or that group won't respond. You, you can't chase someone down who doesn't want to have a conversation with you you, you try and pursue best you can. You keep trying. You keep trying. But sometimes they just won't. That's why Paul says, as, as far as it depends on you, be at peace. Sometimes the two sides can't come together. We as followers of Jesus, as far as we can, as far as it depends on us, we forgive. We pursue that. We demonstrate the good news in offering forgiveness and reconciliation but it may not always restore relationships. That may not always happen. Forgiveness is, I, and I found this one quote I just love. Um, I was searching and I, I found uh, John Piper unpacking this from a Puritan author, Thomas Watson. He does a long kind of walkthrough of this sentence, but I found this to be very helpful as a definition of forgiveness. When we strive against all thoughts of revenge, when we will not do our enemies mischief, but wish well to them, grieve at their calamities, pray for them, seek reconciliation with them, and show ourselves ready on all occasions to relieve them. I love, keep that up, please. Um, I love this. I, I did this this past week, so maybe this is helpful for you. Whether your eyes open or closed, think of someone you need to forgive. Maybe presently, maybe in the past, you've already, but just that exercise, even more better if you can think about it right now, you have someone to forgive. But would you consider that person for a second and hear this definition? When we strive against all thoughts of revenge and we don't hold revenge because we trust God will carry out justice way better than we will. So every wrong will be corrected by Jesus. When we would not do our enemies mischief, we pray for our enemies. We wish well to them. We, we grieve at their calamities. We pray for them. Would you pray for them? Would you grieve when, when, when that person who's done you harm in your workplace maybe cost you the, the, the promotion you deserve? Once they get knocked down, do you, you just cheer? Yeah! No, we grieve at the calamities. We pray for them. Seek reconciliation with them. And show ourselves on all occasions to relieve them. Maybe that person who's harmed you, you, you see them you know, on the side of the road, they have a flat tire. 
and then you're driving by them, do, do you just say in your heart, oh yeah, they got what they deserve. Do you honk at them? Sucka! And just like, I'm going to church today. On the way to church. Maybe you did that this morning. Right? Ha <laughs> ha, look at that guy. No, we would you stop? That's a good definition of forgiveness. Discipline and grace. We need both. If, if we don't have standards, if we don't have discipline of what a follower of Jesus is and is not, if we don't have any love to protect the honor of Jesus, his glory, his excellence, his holiness, his, his glory, if we don't have any boundaries, do you realize when you invite someone to follow Jesus in our church, you're inviting them to nothing? If you say to someone, come and follow Jesus, come to our church, and there's no standard of what following Jesus means, you're inviting them to sit in base chairs for an hour and 15 minutes. Because that's all you're doing then. But the church is centered on Christ, who he is, his character. And so we need discipline to hold that. But just as important as that is grace, forgiveness. You know, a church that doesn't forgive, they're no longer a church. They're a cult. That's what they are. A church, a Christian who doesn't forgive, really doesn't understand forgiveness themselves. Lord, forgive us our debts as we forgive those who sinned against us. You know, some people, I've met people like this. I know leaders like this. Their mode of operation in life is constantly like Jesus overturning tables, right? They're, you know, back in the day, and it still kind of exists today, like people are always like up in arms about what songs we sing and what words. And we should care about the theology in our songs. But, you know, I remember there was a season where, you know, people were really concerned, like there's too much humanity in our song. There's not enough about God. So they criticize anytime there's the word I in the song, right? There's too much I in the song. And it's possible. There can be too much human emphasis in a song, which is bad theology. But I remember someone just like, really getting mad about it. So afterwards, they went to go confront the pastor. That's too much I in that song. It's like constantly everything is just turning over tables. Their only mode of operation, any single time is that anything's wrong, is just they're turning over tables. And I, I, I realize now, many years later, I should have said this to this person. You know, Jesus only overturned tables once. <laughs> so you get the one chance to do this. Do you want to use that on the song? I mean, sometimes people... Jesus turning over tables is just an excuse to be a jerk everywhere in their life. So every time they talk to someone, they're just correcting that person. They're just, they're just Everything is about that. Friends, we need both discipline and grace. You know where you see this the most? Most supremely in Scripture, most supremely in human history, it's the cross. You see on the cross how serious God takes sin. So serious, his son had to die. Had the weight of all of human sin laid upon him, really laid upon him. And he really did die on behalf of your sin. Laid all of human history's sin. That is how serious God takes his holiness and his justice. Yet at the same time, that cross in our place also shows how wide his forgiveness is. His debt for our sin, paid our debt. Church, will we be a church that emulates that? If we're about the cross, we're about Christ, we need both. And God, by his spirit, I pray that he would give us wisdom to have both. Let's pray. Father, would you, by your spirit, 
come over the parents, the grandparents, the soon-to-be parents, the longing-to-be parents in our church. I pray that you would instill in them the gospel, not just facts about Jesus dying and rising, but would your spirit bring that to life in their life so they would love their children, both through discipline and grace. Father, you would restrain us from being overly harsh. You would also wake us up to our lackadaisical ignorance of sin. Would you do that, Lord? Would you be grace, gracious to us and working through our families? Father, would you be with our elders and pastors, our staff? Would you help us first with one another to have discipline and grace? Father, would you help us to wisely know how to respond to one another in the church and a responsibility to shepherd in that way? Father, I pray for my friends here who their conscience is awakened and there is a sin in their midst and they need to repent and they need to turn from you. There maybe is an anxiety or worry. Father, would you help them to see that in that desire to turn from it, you are opening arms to them. May their community with their friends, people who know them, maybe know of this sin, welcome them, show them and extend them love. Father, I pray for my friends who, and this is contradictory, but I pray that your spirit would wake them up because if we're in the midst of unrepentant, defiant sin, we don't even see it. And so, Father, would you open the blindness of the eyes of those of us here at Sunset Church who are living in unrepentant sin? May your spirit be gracious to help us walk back from that ledge as it is your grace that we hear this today. May you empower those in our church who know these brothers and sisters to come alongside, to, to rightly, gently call out sin because they love Jesus in a way that pulls them back, restores them, Lord. Father, we need your spirit to do this because we, we're not good at this. We want to be a church that reflects your glory. We want to be a church that embodies a cross-like life. May your spirit empower us to do that. In Jesus' name, amen.